There is, of course, a very close connection between simplifying things, making them easier to understand, and feeling that you can control things. And since a lot of the anxiety that there is in the world is precipitated by the feeling that we can't control things, or that other people are controlling them but we are not, even that other people are controlling us and we are not, control has lots to commend it, at least in a superficial reading. But the kind of control that you can get from simplification, from understanding things in terms that are simpler than they are, isn't quite what it might at first appear. I said earlier that if you consider such a thing as a formula on a t-shirt, or perhaps rather more accessibly, the rules of a game like chess or draughts, or even tic-tac-toe or chess, knowing the rules doesn't in itself enable you to play the game, and certainly not to play it well. And so it's natural to ask, important to ask, what's the difference between understanding the rules and understanding how to play the game? Which I suppose is really just the question, what does it mean to understand something, and particularly to understand a simplification or an explanation? And I think here that things become a little murky, because one of the things that happens with simplification is that the people usually who do the simplification start from a much more complex position than the simplification that they end up with. In other words, the, the process of making something simple presupposes that you've understood the thing that you're trying to make simple at its more complex level. Otherwise, the process of simplification could hardly be very successful. But you can see that there's a paradox now. We are saying, Leibniz is saying, anybody who thinks in these terms is saying, that in order to understand the simplification, at least to understand it well, properly, in its richest form, you really need to have understood the thing that it simplifies, which thereby rather defeats the object. And if you don't understand the thing that it simplifies, if you only know the simplification but not the thing itself, then does the simplification really give you anything that is remotely like reliable information, knowledge or control over the thing that it is trying to explain to you or to simplify? If you know the rules of chess but you're a really bad player, what is it that you lack? Now, I should say at this point that there is uh, a qualification to all of this. If you were, for example, to give a very clever person the rules of chess, and you've heard me on Alpha Zero and the Deep Mind experiments in chess playing before, but I'll come back to it because it's very interesting in this respect. If you give someone who's very quick on the uptake the rules of chess, but they've never played the game, then some people, I'm sure we all acknowledge, will be much better at it, much quicker than others. And some people will never be good at it, and some of them, some of us, like Magnus Carlsen, will become supremely good at it, as there have always been in history, people with a particular gift for playing that kind of game. 
So when you first encounter the rules of chess, you probably do start just from the simplification, but you very quickly manage to reconstruct the much more complex world of which it is, or the rules are, a simplification. So, when we think about understanding the world and then reconstructing the world, it's natural to ask whether the simplifications are a help or a hindrance. And here's a good example, or at least I think it's a good example. When small children start to learn things like numbers, or they start to learn words, or they start to learn to play a game like chess or any other game, they don't initially have a particularly rich grasp of what is going on. In other words, you may know how to move the pieces on a chessboard, but you don't have any conception of how to direct that towards the end that is the checkmate of the opponent's king. So you have to learn that because it's not written in the rules. The rules are necessary, and any game that you win, you will win by deploying the rules in some way. But that you win will not simply be attributable, except on the basis of sheer chance when two inept players play one another, for example, but we'll leave that on one side. The reason why you won isn't explicable in terms of the rules themselves, because everybody plays by the same rules. So why are some people so much better at chess or other games than others? And I'm sure you can find an adaptation of this for physical games like tennis or squash or football or whoever, whatever. Now, one of the interesting things about Alpha Zero, the latest final version of it, was that whereas its earlier brothers and sisters, cousins perhaps, had learnt the game by following human games and, as you might say, trying to abstract the best moves and strategies from them, DeepMind eventually settled on a scheme, a strategy that meant that AlphaZero taught itself entirely from scratch. Entirely from scratch. It was told the rules and it was simply let go playing itself. And within, I think, I may have got the number wrong, it's quite a long time ago now, but in the space of about four hours, it became the best player anywhere. And this, of course, was on the basis of the great speed that it could play of millions of games. But, and here David Silver, one of the architects of the whole thing, is very interesting, and I probably have mentioned it before, one of the deep mind computer scientists, he says that one of the things that they think made AlphaZero so successful at self-play and learning just from self-play was that it always had an opponent, namely itself, of exactly the right standard. It's, well, for a hum something with human psychology, it's depressing demotivating to play someone much better than you are and it's not at all constructive to play somebody much worse than you are so to play yourself although for a human being to try and do this I'm not sure it would work because it would take far too long to play yourself is at least to have an opponent of approximately the right ability 
Except, of course, that in our case, we would always know what the plan that the other person had was. But it certainly follows, and having wasted a lot of my youth playing chess, I know it for a fact that if you want to improve, the best thing to do is to play someone who is not too different in standard from you are. You can have lessons, you can be taught by someone who's much better at it than you are, but to learn over the board, it doesn't do you very much good to have someone against you who's much better than you are. You just don't learn enough because you don't understand what's going on. All of this being so, it tells us a lot about education, but it also, I think, tells us a lot about simplification. Because the process of simplification, as I said right at the beginning of this episode, presupposes that whoever is doing the simplifying, in order to do it well and properly, has actually grasped the thing that they're doing a simplification of. In history, one of the classic examples would be Euclid, the Greek mathematician who didn't invent his geometrical system, but took all that the Greeks knew about geometry in his time and thought, well, this is a bit of a mess, let's try and make it a system. And so he devised, and it was very clever, extraordinarily clever to do it, but he devised his uh, assumptions, his axioms, his postulates, and then proceeded to show that everything that the Greeks knew about Greek geometry planar geometry, or Euclidean, of course, as it's come to be called geometry, could be deduced, proved, from the postulates that he set out. So Euclid took a huge, complex cloud of of, uh, unsystematized geometrical realities, circles and squares and lines and things, and reduced them to a very small number of axioms. So Leibniz, who of course lived about, uh, what is it, 2,000 years later, will have been proud of that as a process of explaining things in terms that are easier to understand or at least easier to get hold of. But the trouble is that if you only have the postulates or the axioms, you don't know what it is that they would enable you to deduce or prove. You simply don't. You need both. You need the theorems as well as the postulates. And as I said earlier, this raises a very interesting question that I'm not going to go into here about if you're clever enough, can you simply be given the postulates and immediately intuit all the theorems? And the German logician Gottlob Frege, who lived till the end of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, famously Uh, in collaboration with Russell, Bertrand Russell, and uh, an influence on people like Ramsey and Wittgenstein later. Frege once asked the question, would an all-knowing being, an omniscient being, given the axioms of a system, immediately intuit all its theorems? And it's an intriguing question. Because if you're given the axioms of a system, you need to do quite a lot of work under most circumstances, you and I would need to do a lot of work to deduce anything interesting from them at all. So if I was smart enough, I suppose you could say if I was some kind of divine creature and I was given these assumptions, could I immediately say what I could prove from them? Everything that I could prove from them. And just to touch on something and then leave it, 
if I was given something like the piano axioms for number theory or Zermelo Frankel with choice, would I immediately intuit Gödel's incompleteness results? If I'm given the rules for a cellular automaton system that Stephen Wolfram is so fond of, would I immediately intuit all the possible things that could be inferred from them or deduced from them or created by them? And once you say that, you're of course on the fringes of saying, if I was given the basis upon which omega is calculated and I was omniscient, Frege had no knowledge, of course, of Gödel or Turing. He did, I think, know Cantor's results, but I'm not quite sure whether they influenced him and to what extent. If later we were to be given these things, would we intuit all the properties? And in particular, if we were told what omega was, in the sense of omega is a number that records the number of halting programs for every bit length from one to infinity of a particular universal Turing machine. If I did know that, and if I knew the rules of the Turing machine, could I, would I, if I were sufficiently smart, immediately intuit what omega is? Now, because I think the answer is almost certainly no, if not certainly no, I think the answer is certainly no, then there is a problem, or at least there is an interesting feature of modern computer science, which is that modern computer scientists, aware of things like Gödel's results, aware of things like Turing's halting problem, aware of the Church-Turing thesis, aware of perhaps Chaitin's omega number, they have all come to the conclusion that what you really need is a sort of meta-computer. Not a computer that computes by the way a, a Turing machine does, but a computer that computes on another level, at which level all the things that are undecidable or uncomputable at our level, at what you might call the human level, at the Turing level, become computable. And sometimes this is called uh, hypercomputing, not supercomputing, but hypercomputing, metacomputing. Sometimes it's called simply an oracle, something which can give you the answer to any question you ask it that is framed in the language of your own computer system, but which you can't answer, and an oracle will give you the answer. Of course, this is a fictitious thing. It's a, it's a theoretical construct invented by computer scientists to try to get themselves out of a problem. And it's very similar, probably isomorphic to Cantor's discovery of the transfinite cardinals, the notion that there are numbers that aren't countable. And from them to an infinite hierarchy of numbers that aren't countable. Because, of course, the thing about the oracle, the thing about the computer that knows the answer to all things that we can ask in our computer language at our computer level, it will, in, at its level, in turn have its own problems that it can't solve. And so you need another level and another and another ad nauseam or ad infinitum, depending on which comes first. So what we're seeing there is the inverse of the Leibniz project again. The idea 
that there are things in our world that are intractable, that are either uncountable, that are undecidable, as in Turing's things, that are uncalculable, as in Omega, Chaitin's Omega, and that are certainly computably irreducible. And for all of them, the solution that seems to have been adopted, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I think, is the notion that you explain them at another level, at a higher level. In other words, you understand things not by simplifying them, not by reducing them to their component bits, the way Leibniz would have wanted us to, but in fact by making them more complex, by lifting your whole conceptual world into another level, which might well be a realm of hypercomputing or superintelligence or transfinite numbers or whatever it might be. But it's a lot more complicated than we might have thought when we first set about making sense of the world. Thank you for listening.